For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom, the world through, through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, the division has already been addressed in in verses 10 through 17. He says, I have been hearing that there are divisions among you. And there cannot be. There must be agreement because we are all one in Christ. And so what we need to see is, is what is it that unites us? What is it that brings us together? It can't be a speaker because that's what they were dividing over. So what is it that does unite us, that supersedes all the speakers? doesn't matter who's up there speaking. The most important thing is this, and it is this foolish message of the cross. I put that in quotations because that's the way it looked to the outside world. It looked like a foolish message, and we're going to see that here in the first several verses. So first, the message of the gospel is foolishness to the world. The message of the gospel is foolishness to the world in verses 18 through 25. And what God's going to show us here through the Spirit as He has inspired the Word is for us to see that that there is a great reversal that's taking place here. What appears to be wisdom is going to look foolish. It's going to be made foolish. What appears to be wisdom is going to made, be made foolish. What appears to be foolish is going to be seen as wise. Okay, so you see where I'm going with that? What appears to be wisdom, that's these philosophers and all their ideas of what, what ought to be and, and how it ought to be explained... That's going to be shown to be foolish by God. But that which appears to be foolish is actually going to be seen as wise. So, first the statement in verse 18. The statement, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and to us who are being saved is the power of God. So here's a summary statement of what we're going to see. And it is that the word of the cross to the world is foolishness. This word, or this word here is translated that way, but it also can be message. So, this message about the cross can be seen in two different lights. 
to those who are perishing, it is seen as foolishness. But what about to those who are being saved? What is it seen as, according to the text? To those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. So Paul describes two different categories of people. Rather than saying, it is foolishness to the non-Christians and it is the power of God to Christians, instead of saying that, he says, to those who are perishing and to those who are being saved, to those whose final destination is eternal hell and to those who are, whose final destination is eternal salvation. And depending on which category a person is in, is in will determine how they see the gospel. Isn't that true? Have you found that to be true in your own uh, evangelism efforts? That when a person actually comes to a realization of what that gospel is, it is the power of God. It is great, wise power. Powerful wisdom. But to those who are perishing, you can keep telling them the gospel and telling them and telling them and telling them and to them it is what? Foolishness. The word foolishness here in verse 18 comes from the Greek word uh, moriah, from which we get our word moronic. And, and from their perspective, I mean, how foolish is it to have this king humiliated? I mean, what kind of message is that? Humiliated in the worst way and actually dies. Where's the wisdom in that appeal? And apparently some people in the church were asking Paul to spice things up a little bit. You know, when you give your message, do you have to really say it like that? Do we really have to focus so much on the humiliating part? I mean, can't we just talk about the reigning and the, you know, the, the times when he destroys his enemies and he casts out demons and when he comes back and rides in on a white horse? Can't we talk about those kinds of things? I mean, no one wants to hear about a dead Messiah, so why don't you dress it up with words of wisdom, make it more palatable? But Paul says, no, this is the power of God. This naked message of the cross is the power of God. It doesn't need to be dressed up. It has great authority on its own. That's the idea of power there. So if you are in the process of being destroyed, the message of the cross is foolishness to you. No one could ever come to God through a cross. But if you are being saved, the message of the cross is powerful wisdom to you. Praise God that I can be saved through the cross. So the statement. Secondly, the promise in verse 19. The promise God had made in Isaiah chapter 29 is that I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. So here's where we see that this Wisdom, from the world's perspective, what they see as wisdom is going to be made foolish. This cleverness on their part is going to be set aside. God's going to silence them. In, in that text, in Isaiah 29, God is judging so-called wisdom of Judah that they were rejecting at that time true worship and exchanging it for false worship. And because they lacked discernment as to what God was doing and to the warnings that were uh, real, 
God says, I'm going to make it very clear one day that this worldly wisdom is foolish. I'm going to bring it down. And, and the form that he's talking about there in Isaiah's context is, is in the form of judgment. It's going to be like we talk about, I think it's in 2 Corinthians, where our, our, our works that are made of wood, hay, and stubble are going to burn up. And how much more an unbeliever if their whole lives are built on that? There is no gold, silver, and precious stone. So what God is doing here is He's promising that to take what appears to be wisdom and to crush it, to show it as folly in light of the cross. So, self-made wisdom divorced from God's revelation is no wisdom at all. Self-made wisdom divorced from God's revelation is no wisdom at all. The reality is that people think that they know what is best, right? There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof leads to what? Leads to death. It seems right to a person to go this way, to follow this religion. But in the end, it leads to death. That's why our wisdom is not enough. We need God's revelation. So God's promise to, to destroy, to crush human wisdom. In verses 20 through 21, we see the ineffectiveness of their wisdom. This is God mocking them. Where is the wise man? I mean, Paul's speaking here, but, but he's speaking, I think, on behalf of God. Where, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Once the wisdom of the cross has been revealed, where are all the wise people of the age? Supposedly know all these things. Think about where they were, right? They were in Corinth. A, a hub of philosophy where philosophy was actually very highly admired and revered. And the Greeks saw themselves as, as very clever, very wise. I mean, can you think of some of the great Greek philosophers prior to Paul's day? Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, right? What, what um, Paul is saying is their wisdom, really, divorced from God's revelation, is nothing. In, in light of the wisdom of the cross that we're going to see, it is foolishness. Now, what I want to be clear about is that there's nothing inherently wrong with human reasoning. Okay? When we might think, well, okay, so I guess if human reasoning is foolishness, then I can just check all of my human reasoning at the door when I come to church. Or when I read the Bible, I'm not even going to use my mind. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to engage without my mind somehow. But I think the point is that we need to recognize is that human reasoning is limited. If that is our end-all, be-all item for how we get to what we want, then we've missed the boat. Human reasoning, human reasoning apart from God's revealed Word is foolishness. But human reasoning, as we, as we look at the Word of God, right underneath, it, it's subservient to God's revelation is actually real wisdom. 
Notice verse 21. For since the, in the wisdom of the world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. So in God's wisdom, He chose that He would not allow people who were the wisest of the day to be able to come up with some way to get to God. They were not going to be the ones to figure it out. They weren't going to devise their way to God. We'll find out why in verse 31. But on the surface, we should be able to see that, that, that understanding the cross does not come from gaining more wisdom by building up our book study or becoming better at philosophy. That's not how we receive the cross. And aren't you thankful you didn't have to pass a philosophy course in order to receive the cross of salvation, to believe the message of Jesus Christ? That's not how it's received. Our understanding of the cross and our acceptance of the gospel can only happen through the preaching of the gospel. Notice the second part of verse 21. Instead, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It is as simple as a person getting up, flawed as they are, preaching the message or simply speaking the message of the gospel and someone believing. That's the cross. That's how silly it is in the eyes of the world. It seems like you have to do more. I mean, if we are in this great of a debt to our God, then certainly we must have to do more. God's saying, no. Take my word at face value, believe it, and put your whole, stake your whole life on it. That's salvation. So, the world's wisdom is utter foolishness. And then here's the second great reversal. God's foolishness is genuine wisdom. Now again, I put that in quotations because there's no foolishness in God. This is what the world sees. And that's why I put it in quotation marks. This is how they see it. They see God as foolish. This message of the cross is foolish. And what Paul is saying, he's actually using that kind of language uh, in the text. Um... Let me find it here. Verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. It's not saying like the dumbest part of God is wiser than man. We, we have similar say, sayings like that, right? I, I can't think of one right now, but you know, the weakest muscle in my body is stronger than your strongest one or something. I don't, I don't know. But, but that's not the idea here. Instead, the foolishness, I think, is in quotation marks. The foolishness, so to speak, of God is wiser than men. What you think to be foolish, like the worst part about God, this message of the cross, in their view, is actually wiser than men. And it's the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, let's like take a look at these verses. Verse 22, the world wants more than what God has revealed. Right? The Jews want a sign, and the Greeks want what? They want wisdom. The Jews are fools to ask for a sign, right? Because God has given a clear sign. Not that signs are wrong, right? Jesus came performing signs and wonders. Nothing wrong with signs. But asking for a sign is wrong. God has already revealed what He wants to reveal about Himself, what He needs to reveal about Himself in order for us to accept. We don't need to ask for a sign. They are foolish to ask because they had the clearest sign ever. And what was it? Who was it? It was Jesus. They had the promised Messiah who they were waiting for, and He shows up. We were talking last night in our Bible study, you know, John the Baptist was wondering, is this the, is this the one? Is He the promised Messiah? And Jesus said, go back and tell Him. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the dead are being raised. You connect the dots. 
This is a direct fulfillment, Jesus is saying, of the Old Testament. I'm here, right in front of your face. I don't need to show you any more signs. But the Jews didn't think that was noteworthy enough. They were looking for something more. In fact, I was just reading this week in one of the commentaries, one of the historians was saying that one of the signs that the Jews were looking for was if the Messiah was really there, then let a, a cow give birth to a lamb inside the temple. Okay? I mean, does God have the power to cause that to happen? Absolutely. He can do whatever He pleases. He has that kind of miraculous power. But what they're doing is actually showing their lack of faith. You know, we, we have all these evidences. We see what you've shown us, God, but it's not enough. Show me something more. I mean... Probably the one of most amazing is when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And you had Jews who were actually there in attendance. You know, you think about the Jairus' daughter who dies, and that's kind of, well, it's in a secret room, and Jesus is there, three of the disciples, but, yeah, that really happened? I don't know. Maybe she really wasn't dead. Lazarus, four days in the grave, right? And they were all there to watch him walk out. And they still did not believe. They went back to the chief priest and said, what are we going to do to stop this guy? He's going to gain a huge following now. Yeah, and that's what they wanted to do. We need to kill him. Otherwise, he's going to spread his story. So the Jews want a sign. And, you know, just keep thinking. And it's like seems like so clear at the cross, right? You had the darkness for the three hours that God was judging him and the veil being torn in two. Those are pretty good signs that what's happening here is significant in human history. Instead, they explain it away. We can rationalize this from our perspective and say, How, what idiots. But again, go back to verse 18 and see why that is. To those who are perishing, the message of the cross is foolishness. The Greeks, they, they're not so concerned with signs. They want wisdom. That's what they value most, philosophy, logic. So if you can prove this to me through arguments, then, then I can accept it. You know people like this? Right? They have to, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a, um, a logical person, analytical, and this doesn't quite score up. A virgin birth, really? I mean, where's the scientific proof that that could happen? Right? Someone raising from the dead after being dead for three days? I mean, really? So, this is the Greeks. That's the way they are. To them, if they can't explain it, they can't map it all out and show where the arguments all connect, prove it scientifically, then to them it's foolishness and nonsense. But notice the content of God's so-called foolishness in verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. To the Jews, the dead Messiah doesn't make sense. Dead Messi uh, Messiahs don't die. They live and they conquer and they reign. And to the Gentiles, it doesn't make sense either. But for Christians, this message is the power and the wisdom of God. Notice how Christians are described here. Before, they were described in verse 18 as those who are being saved. Here in verse 23, they're described as those who are the called. Those who are called by God. 
the Jews are looking for some power in the message. The Greeks are looking for, for some wisdom, and neither one of them find it. And yet, in the end, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verse 25. The point is, as I mentioned earlier, there's more power in what seems to be weakness. There's more wisdom in what seems to be foolishness than in the strongest of men. So take all of the best philosophers of the day, put all their brains together and come up with an idea of how they can get to God. Foolishness in comparison to the cross. Foolishness in comparison to what supposedly is uh, not wise by what, by, by what God is doing. So, God refrains from using worldly wisdom as the message of the Gospel. saying, you're not going to be the one who figures this out. I'm going to be the one that reveals it to you. But amazingly, it's not just that God refrains from using worldly wisdom to give the message. In other words, He uses a foolish, from the world's perspective, message. But He also chooses nobodies to embrace this message. This is the part where I'm really going to pump up your ego, okay? Because if you accepted the message like I have, then you are a nobody. That's what this text is going to tell us. Notice the description. And uh, this doesn't feel very good at all. Verses 26 through 28. But wait till we get to the end. It, it will. The description of the nobodies. He begins by saying, Consider your calling. So, don't simply consider the message, which appears to be foolish, but also consider, consider your calling. Consider who you are who has received it. Notice what he says about them. There were not many wise. That is, who actually responded to the calling. They weren't, there were not very many wise. Hint, hint, Corinthian church. You. Not many of you are wise. They were probably largely uneducated. They wouldn't be able to have a good debate with the philosophers in Corinth. There were not many mighty, so they probably didn't have very good, very much political power and influence where they could just, you know, show up in the government and say, you know, this is, this is my place, this is what I'm going to do. And then not many noble, so they didn't come from rich backgrounds. Okay, so right now, Paul's being a little generous, saying not many, and there's, then we don't want to miss that word because we might think is no rich person can ever be saved or no... A politically strong person could ever be saved, or no, um, you know, no wise person could ever be saved. But notice it says not many, so that means that there are some, and uh, you probably know some who are wise and mighty and noble who have received the gospel, just like I do. But the reality is that the message of the cross has this leveling effect, doesn't it? that it brings us all onto the same plane so that we can't say, well, look at me. Look at how I came to Christ. We'll talk about this more later. In verse 27, they're described a little further and they're actually reversed in the eyes of God. Those who are something in this world end up as nothings and those who are nothings end up as something. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So what are these foolish things? Well, it's the people in verse 26, the, the brethren, the, the not many wise, not many noble, not many, not many mighty. Those are the foolish things that God has chosen to shame the wise. And 
Second part of verse 27, God has chose, chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. So here's another way that he describes us. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, foolish, weak, still describing us. Verse 28, and the base things. Again, this is describing us. And the despised things God has chosen. The things that are not. Here's where I got the word nothings from, right? The things that are not. That's us. We're the people who have nothing to show for ourselves. Those are the ones that God has chosen. He's chosen the nobodies, the nothings, the insignificant, the unimportant, the people with no political background, the people with no social standing, people who will die and be forgotten. He's chosen those people. People like you and me. Notice the reason here at the end of verse 28. So that He may nullify the things that are. This, I think, is a fulfillment, fulfillment of what He had promised to Judah back up in verse 19. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. When I set you, foolish nobodies, up against these wise know-it-alls, I'm going to make them look like fools because you accepted the way to me, which was the cross, the foolish message of the cross. They rejected it. They tried to find their own way, their own pathway to me. There was no other way. There's only one way. It's through this so-called foolish message of the cross that comes by faith. Skip down to verse 30 to see the benefit of being a nobody. benefit of being a nobody. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So here are all the great blessings that we have by virtue of what God has done for us. And I want to emphasize, before we look at these benefits, I want to emphasize that it's a work that God does. Have you noticed this in the text? Verse 18, those who are being saved, passive, Passive, meaning someone else is doing the saving. Who would that be? Right? God. Verse 21. The end of the verse says, God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So who's doing the saving? God is. Through the message preached, God is doing the saving of those who believe. Verse 24. But to those who are the called. Again, passive. We are the called. It doesn't say to those who are the searchers. It's true that when we came to God, we actually started searching the Scriptures to see if this was true. But but actually, we were called first, weren't we? God was the one who called us. Verse 26, consider your calling. Again, we're not doing the calling. We're not calling ourselves. We're not the ones calling out to God. God's the one calling us. Verses 27 and 28, three times God has chosen, God has chosen, God has chosen. So it's God who is using us to show His wisdom. He's the one who's bringing us into His family, us nobodies, into His family in order to highlight His power, His wisdom. And then notice again, verse 30, where we are, uh, by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So by my doing, no, 
by God's doing. I am in Christ Jesus. All the glory belongs to God. So God's choice of us is important to, to this whole equation. And God's choice of us is grounded in Christ. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And as a result, we receive three main things. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do you see that in the text? Righteousness is the justification that comes through Christ. Right? The robe of righteousness that Jesus had because by virtue of His perfect life is transferred to us at salvation. Right? We transfer our penalty, our robe of sin to Christ. He bears it upon Himself. He bears our sin for us even though He knew no sin. We bear His righteousness even though we knew no righteousness effectively. Right? And, and so that's what this is talking about here. The, the righteousness of Christ that's imputed, it's, it's passed on, reckoned to our account. Second part is sanctification or holiness. This is the transformation that comes through Christ. That Christ's holiness is the basis for our ongoing transformation, our change towards godliness. And then uh, redemption. Christ's death is the basis for our redemption. So here's all the blessings that we have as nobodies when we accept the message of the cross. We receive the righteousness of Christ. We are growing in Christ and we, we are redeemed from, um, from sin through the blood of Christ. But the big question is why? Why would God choose nobodies to be His heirs? Why would God do this? Well, we, we have a hint a really good idea in verses 29 and 31. And the answer is, God chooses nobodies so that He receive all, receives all the glory. God chooses nobodies so that He receives all the glory. You see that in verse 29? So that no man may boast before God. In the end, when we stand before God, on that final day, no one of us is going to say, did you see what I did? And what would happen if the philosophers of the world worked together and competed against one another or competed with one another or, 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 or on the same team, so to speak, and they built themselves a ladder of knowledge to God? What would they say when they got there? In other words, if human wisdom could bring about salvation, who gets the credit in the end? The person who made the ladder and the person who used their strength to climb the ladder. Look at what I accomplished. All these people before me couldn't do it. They weren't smart enough. It's because of my wisdom that I now stand before God. So I receive the glory. But there is no ladder of human wisdom. There is no ladder of human power that can reach to God, is there? What if instead of we having to make our way to God, what if God reaches down from heaven and chooses to take a nobody and pour out grace on that person and lift him up and bring him to a place of glory? What will all those nobodies say in the end? And they realize that they could do nothing in order to get to God. God had to come and scoop them out to rescue them from themselves. What will they say in the end? Will they say, all glory be to me? 
Paul says, no way. God chooses the nobody so that no man may glory in himself, but that, but, but that we will boast only in God. Verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Any perceived glory that we think we have built up for ourselves is really derived from the gifts that God has given us, right? Any good that we've done in this world is only because of what God has done in us. So the point of all this mystery of the cross and how it's foolish to the world and and its power to those who are being saved, and the role reversals, those who are somebodies turned into nobodies, and those who are nobodies turned into somebodies. All the point of all this is so that no one can boast in themselves. Because all the glory belongs to the triune God. None of it belongs to us. So let's step back for a second and see how this, how this plays into the picture of what's going on in Corinth. Why bring up all this, Paul? with regard to the issues that we're dealing with. We're dealing with division and later on immorality and all sorts of other issues. But, but specifically, you just brought up division within the church. So how does this all play into it? And here's what I think. What Paul is trying to teach them and what we ought to, to draw from this. Seeing God's grace eliminates church division. Seeing God's grace eliminates church division. The reason I say that is because grace has a leveling effect on all of us. No one's going to enter into heaven and say, see how much better of a person I was than you? We're all going to enter on the same plane because we all deserve hell and yet we've been rescued by God through the blood of Jesus. And so we all enter heaven with no reason to boast in ourselves. But, but when we are divisive, I think we miss that point. We forget about the grace. You know, some of the most divisive people that have ever lived are the Pharisees. And they hated grace. You know why they hated grace? Because they didn't think they needed it. We can do this ourselves. Grace is repulsive to people who think they don't need it. And so they're constantly dividing they're constantly bickering. And I think in, in a even as Christians, we can be divisive when we miss the point of grace. When we forget that we are all like the, the, the workers for the vineyard. In the parable of the vineyard, remember? Jesus goes out in the morning and all these people are, are at His mercy. They're, they have nothing to feed themselves. And so they need work. And, and Jesus, I say Jesus, it's really the Master, but I think the point is probably um, the analogy is Jesus or God is calling them in to work for Him. And, and the first workers, He hires early in the morning and says, I'll pay a denarius, one day's wage, if you come and work for me. And then He hires some at noon. And then He hires some later on. And really, one hour before, it's dark. He says, would you come and work for me? doesn't tell them all how much they're going to make. Just the first workers. So then when the master comes and starts paying them, he starts with the ones who came last. The ones that came just worked one hour. They missed all the hard work. Do you know people like this? Right? They just come in at the last minute and they skipped all the hard work. And Oh, you guys need any, ha- you need any help? 
That's these people at the end. And, and the master says, here you go, here's your denarius. These people back here at the beginning are thinking, they got a denarius? You know what that's going to mean for us? We've been working all day for the heat of the sun. Certainly we're going to get much more. Well, next group comes, denarius. Next group comes, denarius. Comes the last group. Are you kidding me? What is this? And the master says, did, did you not agree to work for that amount? Well, yeah, but they missed all the hard work, it was the heat of the sun. Do you remember that? And, and the master's response is, can I not be merciful to whomever I please? And the point of it is, I didn't have to be merciful to you. Do you see? You may have done a lot more. In fact, all of us, right, will have done a lot more than, let's say, the thief on the cross. He came at the last minute. Or someone you know that maybe got saved in their deathbed. And have to go through all the trouble of ridicule and persecution. And our question when we get there is not going to be, why didn't I get more? Our question is, why would you be so gracious to me to rescue me in the first place? Because I deserved your wrath, God. My sin was worthy of your full condemnation. When we see that, we step up into heaven all in the same line, all recipients of God's grace. We see ourselves in that light within the church. It has an effect on how we treat one another, doesn't it? It's not, I'm better than you. I've been doing this longer than you. I know the Bible more than you. I think we often fight and war among ourselves because we think we are owed something from God. But that division vanishes away when we recognize that we are all recipients of the same foolish message of the cross. God chose a lowly message delivered by lowly messengers. We'll see that next time in chapter 2. To lowly people so that no one could boast in any part of the process and anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So in the end, all the glory goes to God. All right, any questions?